Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya. Uh, namaskaram. Um, there's a slight change in uh, program. It was originally announced that I was going to talk today about bhakti, that is about devotion, which is very central to the practice of Bhagavan's teachings. But I have since been told that um, many of the people attending today may not know, may not be so familiar with Bhagavan's teachings. So I will start by talking about the, the basics and then go on to talk about devotion. Um, the best starting point for Bhagavan, for, to explain Bhagavan's teachings is to start from happiness because we all seek happiness. And um, uh, there is one, one of Bhagavan's most important works is a work called Nana, that means who am I? This work was originally um, in the very early days, in about 1901, 1902, when Bhagavan was just in his early 20s, a devotee called Shiva Prakashan Pillai came and asked Bhagavan a series of questions. The first question he asked was, Swami, who am I? So that, that shows how well attuned he was, because he had no way of knowing, but, uh, but Bhagavan had come to this world precisely to teach this path of self-investigation, who am I? He didn't know that at that time, but that was since his college days, when he had studied some philosophy, the main question that was in his mind is, who am I? So this was the first question he asked Bhagavan. This work, uh, Who Am I?, was first published as a series of questions and answers uh, recorded by Shiva Kashan Palai. And um, later, Bhagavan himself rewrote it in the form of an essay. And when he rewrote it in the form of an essay, he added the first paragraph, which was not part of the original question and answers. So um, this first paragraph is extremely important because this is the best introduction to Bhagavan's teachings. It, this first paragraph consists of just two sentences. The first sentence is a rather long sentence with um, in which Bhagavan gives some very important but subtle uh, arguments about what our real nature is. What he says in the first um, paragraph is, um, I will not read the Tamil because I think most of the audience are not familiar with Tamil. I'll just read the English meaning. He starts by saying that, that is very series of clauses, a series of since clauses, three since clauses. In the first clause, he says, since all sentient beings like to be always happy without what is called misery. And in the next clause, he says, since for everyone, the greatest love is only for oneself. What that, that's the way it's expressed in Tamil. What that means basically is we all naturally love ourselves above all, all other things. Um, and since happiness alone is the cause for love, what this means is we all love those things which we think, which we believe will contribute to our happiness. If something will contribute to our happiness, we love, like it or love it. 
if, if something is, is detrimental to our, our happiness, uh, we, we naturally feel averse to it because it, it, is it is our very nature to always like to be happy. So whatever contributes to our happiness, we we like. Whatever doesn't contribute to our happiness, we don't like. That's why he says happiness alone is the cause for love. So there are three arguments here. Firstly, we all like to be happy without misery. The words he uses for happy and misery, for happy, the word is sukhamai. Sukham means happiness, uh, satisfaction. Oh, um, and uh, the, the opposite, misery, uh, dukkha, it also means dissatisfaction. So we are all looking for satisfaction because in, in the state of satisfaction, we are happy. We are, um, we are contented. When we are dissatisfied, we are unhappy. So we can take it, we, the, the term that he uses for happiness also means satisfaction. And the term he uses for misery also means dissatisfaction. So we all uh, want to be, or like to be happy. We all have greatest love only for ourselves, uh, and that is above all other things we have love for ourselves. And the cause for love is happiness. Uh, so, uh, why? Uh, they, um, uh, okay, I'll go on to yeah, and elaborate on the argue. I explain the arguments in more detail afterwards. So, those are the three sense clauses. Then he goes on to say. In order to obtain that happiness, which is one's own nature, which one experiences daily in dreamless sleep, which is devoid of mind, oneself knowing oneself is necessary. So what he, what he is, um, wants us to understand from this is we all like to be happy. We all have greatest love for ourselves, And the, what makes us love anything is because it, it, we we love whatever we take to be a source of happiness. So since we have greatest love for ourselves, that is one argument why happiness is our real nature. And um, the fact that we always want to be happy, we always want to return to our real nature. Um, but another argument Bhagavan often used to give in, in connection with this is why uh when if 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 we have a headache that headache we we feel discomfort in a state of headache because it is not our natural state when we are relieved from the headache which is unnatural to us we feel great joy great relief so we always want to be free of what is unnatural and we seek what is natural so the fact that we all like to be happy means that happiness is natural to us and we all have greatest love for ourselves because because we have greatest love for what causes us happiness and we ourselves are happiness so there are a number of uh, implied uh, uh, implications in what he's saying here and then he goes on to in the, the main clause to give another argument that is uh, that is he says in order to obtain that happiness which is one's own nature which one experiences daily in sleep sleep means dreamless sleep that is in dreamless sleep we are all happy but 
it, that state is a state devoid of mind. So in sleep, what we experience is nothing but our own being, our own, our own existence. But the fact that we're happy in sleep means that happiness is our own existence. It's our very nature. It's what we actually are. So in order to attain that happiness, which is one's own nature, which one experiences daily in sleep, which is devoid of mind, oneself knowing oneself is necessary. So the implication here is that happiness is our own real nature. Therefore, in order to experience that happiness, we need to know our, ourself. We need to know our real nature. We need to know what we actually are. The obvious implication here is that at present we do not know what we actually are. That is, we all know that we are, we all know that I am, but we don't know what I am. So he, in the second sentence he says, for that, meaning for knowing oneself, jnana vichara, jnana vichara means awareness investigation, called who am I, alone is the principal means. That is, in order to know ourselves, we need to investigate ourselves. And what we essentially are is just awareness. So we're, when we are investigating ourselves, we are not investigating anything that we seem to be. We are investigating what we actually are, namely pure awareness. So, as I say, Bhagavan begins his teachings by uh, pointing out that what we are all seeking is happiness. But why, have, why do we continue seeking happiness? Obviously, we haven't achieved the happiness that we want. If we achieved the happiness that we want, we wouldn't continue seeking it. But we do continue seeking it. We all, because we feel a deficiency in ourselves, we feel we are lacking happiness, so we look for happiness outside ourselves. So we seek happiness in... Um, acquiring material possessions, in having a successful career, in having a, uh, a nice, um, a compatible husband or wife, loving parents, loving children, um, we, uh, um, a successful career, maybe material possessions, maybe some people, I mean, we all seek happiness in different things. Some people seek happiness in name and fame. Some people ha seek happiness in learning. But we're all, whatever we are seeking, we are all, uh, what we're ultimately seeking is happiness. So we're looking for happiness in things other than ourselves. That is why we ha we haven't yet achieved the, the perfect happiness that we're all seeking because we're looking in the wrong direction. Happiness does not lie in anything external to us, ourselves. Happiness is our own real nature. But if happiness is our own real nature, why then do we not know ourselves? The reason is because we now mistake ourselves to be something other than what we actually are. So as I said, we, though we, we all know that I am, we know our existence, we don't know what I am. We, that is, we, we don't know our real identity because we now identify ourselves with something other than what we actually are. Now we identify ourselves as a person. A person consists of uh, a physical body, obviously, the life that animates that body. We don't consider a dead body to be a person. Uh, so it's a, a living body we take to be ourselves. And we 
only experience a body as ourself in a state that we take to be waking. That is, even when we're dreaming, it seems to us that we're awake. So in, in this state of waking or dream, we are, we, we are not only embodied, we're also minded. That is, we, we are aware of ourselves not only as a body and the life that animates that body, we're also aware of ourselves as a, a mind, an intellect, and a will. So these um, five, the physical body, the, um, the life that animates it, and the mind, intellect, and will that function within it, make up the person we take ourselves to be. And that which is aware of itself, as I am this body, that is ego. So in waking and dream, we rise as ego. Consequently, we're aware of ourselves as I am this person. And consequently, we're aware of all other things. In sleep, we do not rise as ego. And consequently, we're not aware of anything other than our own existence. All we are aware of in sleep, we're not aware of anything. We're not aware of the passing of time. We're not aware of anything. We're aware only of our own being, our own existence. We're aware only I am. So, but we're perfectly happy in that state. We don't feel, we don't feel, though we are deprived of everything that we hold dear in the waking and dream states, um, in sleep we're deprived of all those things, but yet we're perfectly happy. So, Happiness doesn't come from those external things as we suppose it does. Happiness comes from within ourselves. Happiness is our own real nature. We are not aware of ourselves as infinite happiness because we are now we have now limited ourselves within the confines of this little body that we now take ourselves to be. So why why it why is it said that this, that this, our identification with this body is false? The reason is very simple. Now in this waking state, we're aware of this body as ourself. I am sitting, I am talking, we, that all the actions of the body we are taking to be are actions done by us because we experience this body as ourself. Likewise, in dream, we experience a body as ourself. But the Though we seem to be the same person in dream, but we are in waking, the body that we experience as ourself in dream is actually not the same body as this. Because if the dream body is injured, when we wake up, this body isn't injured. Or this body may be injured, we may be injured in the waking state, but in dream, we, that in waking state, we may be, um, we may have had an accident and be confined to a wheelchair. But in the dream, we'll be walking around, maybe running a marathon or something. So but clearly, the, the waking body and the dream body are two different bodies. Since we are aware of ourselves in dream, without being aware of this body, this body clearly cannot be what we actually are. And since we're now aware of ourselves, without being aware of that dream body, that dream body cannot be what we actually are. So our identification with the body is false. But in both these states, it's the same mind. The same mind that uh, is active in the waking state is also active in the dream state. So does that mean this mind is what we actually are? No, it cannot be. Because in sleep, we are aware of our own existence without being aware 
of uh, of the body or the, the life that animates the body or the mind or the intellect or the will. So the fact that we are aware of our existence without being aware of any of these things is clear evidence that none of these things are what we actually are. What we actually are is only that fundamental awareness I am, which is our own existence. Here many people object, oh no, in sleep we're not aware of anything. But if we think about it a little, uh, a little more carefully, it is clear that we are aware in sleep. We, we are not aware of anything, but we are aware. That is, if we are aware I am. Why is it, why, why, how can we understand this? For the simple reason, supposing sleep was a state of total non-awareness, supposing there was absolutely no awareness in sleep, we would not be aware of any gap between successive states of waking and dream. So our experience would be that there are just two states, waking and dream, that alternate with each other. We would not be aware of any gap between these. But we are all clearly aware there is a gap between these. There is a third state in which we are not aware of anything. How are we so clearly aware but we were in a state in which we were not aware of anything if we were not aware in that state. That is, we were not aware of anything. That is, we were not aware of any phenomena. All we were aware of in sleep is our own being, I am. So the fact that we are aware of our existence in sleep and moreover, we're perfectly happy in sleep. When we wake up, we say, oh, I had such a peaceful sleep. It was so pleasant. Um, the fact that we are aware of our existence and we experience happiness, that means that happiness is our own real nature. So what we actually are is that pure being, pure awareness and pure happiness, which are not three separate things, they're all one and the same thing, and that alone remains in sleep, and that even now we experience as our own being, as our, our own fundamental awareness, I am. So this is the, the basic, um, the, the basic, the foundation of Bhagavan's teachings. So we, though we know, as I said, though we know that we are, we don't know what we are. So in order to experience the infinite happiness that we actually are, we need to experience ourselves as we actually are. We need to be aware of ourselves as we actually are. In order to be aware of ourselves as we actually are, we need to investigate ourselves. Investigate ourselves means we need to turn our attention inward, back towards our own being, I am. That is, when we investigate anything external to ourselves, we need the aid of instruments such as, well, we need the mind, we need the five senses, and depending on what we're investigating, we, we may need other in, instruments. If we're investigating, if we're an astrophysicist investigating far away um, phenomena in the universe, we need all sorts of sophisticated uh, telescopes and computers to interpret the readings and everything. If we are investigating something very small, if we're a um, a, a microbiologist or uh, or a biochemist or something, and we need to use mi a microscope, 
or if we're um, an atomic physicist or a we, we we need to have very sophisticated instruments to experience something very small. Even if it's something that is visible to us, even if we're investigating something invisible to our eyes, we, we are still using the, our eyes as instruments. But in order to investigate ourselves, we do not need any in such instruments because we are always aware of our own existence. However, Though we are always aware of our own existence, generally we just take our existence for granted. We are we are more interested in in experiencing things other than ourselves than we are in knowing what we actually are. So our attention is constantly going out, seeking happiness outside ourselves. According to Bhagavan, this is the fundamental error we make. What we are seeking, the happiness we are seeking, does not lie in any of the external things. It lies only within ourselves. So our attention, which is now going outwards towards other things, we need to turn back within to attend to ourself alone. To attend to ourself means attend to our own being, attend to that fundamental awareness I am. So this is this is the path of self-investigation that Bhagavan taught us. It is simply a matter of turning our attention back within, which, as Bhagavan taught us, is extremely simple. However, though it is simple, simple both in the sense it's 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 simple both in the sense of it's it's extremely simple because there's just we are attending to ourselves, no other things are involved. It's also simple in the sense that it's very easy. Then if we are able to attend to so many other things, how much easier it should be to attend to ourselves. However, when we try to put it into practice, when we try to attend to ourselves, we all feel difficulty. The reason we feel difficulty is because we because of our a deep-rooted belief that happiness lies in external things, we have very strong inclination to attend to things other than ourselves. These inclination, there's a technical term for this, that is all objects or phenomena are called, in Sanskrit, are called vishayas. And Inclinations are called vasanas. So Bhagavan referred to our inclination to attend to anything other than ourselves as vishaya vasanas. And we, these vishaya vasanas are the seeds that give rise to likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, hopes, fears, and so on. Um, or in other words, vishaya vasanas are all our likes, dislikes, desires, and so on in their seed form. Because we have these strong vishaya vasanas, when we try to turn our attention inwards, our attention naturally keeps on bouncing out again, so to speak. So it requires it requires a lot of practice to slowly, slowly cultivate what Bhagavan called sat vasana. Sat means being or existence. It refers to our own being, our own existence. And vasana, as I said, means inclination. So sat vasana is the love to attend to our own being, the love to know and to be what we actually are. It's called sat vasana. 
by by patient and persistent practice of self-investigation, trying to turn our attention inwards, trying to be constantly self-attentive, the satvasana is strengthened and the vishaya vasanas are weakened. So how long is this practice, uh, for how long is this practice required? For as long as it takes for us to uh, give up all our um, likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, hopes, and fears, and the seeds that give rise to them, namely the vasanas, and to cultivate the opposite, the satvasana, the, the intense love to know and to be what we actually are. Uh, so this is the path of self-investigation. However, Bhagavan often said, um, this is a preliminary teaching, because they, but Bhagavan's teachings, we need to understand different, that is, different levels of explanation, different levels of teaching are there. So on the, surf, on the surface level, Bhagavan often used to say, there are two ways. Either investigate yourself or surrender yourself. Surrender yourself means surrender to God. Um, the self that we have to surrender, it's obviously not what we actually are. We obviously cannot give up what we actually are. We can only give up what we now seem to be. So the self that is to be surrendered is ego. This I that is aware of itself as I am this person. So the, the path of surrender is, uh, begins in what is called the path of bhakti. Bhakti means devotion. So the path of devotion begins with devotion to God. And we need to understand what we mean by devotion to God. That is, there are many people who go to churches and temples and mosques and gurudwaras and so on, and synagogues and so on, but all those who go to these places of worship, are they all going there just for the sake of God? No. It, it generally, when, when, we, when people pray to God, they, what do they pray for? They pray for health, wealth, and all, all these things, and they, it, to, the removal of difficulties and the fulfillment of desires, basically. This is what most so-called devotees of God are praying for. So for them, God is a means to an end. That that is, uh, they, they they what they want is um, is a, a nice, comfortable life in 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 this lifetime, and perhaps afterwards to go to heaven or to have a a better afterlife from this life. So they they worship God. So their um, their devotion is not real devotion for God. It's devotion for what they can get from God. So God is a means, and what whatever their desires are at the end. However, this sort of devotion is the, the majority of people who are devoted to God are devoted for this uh, in this way. However, this is not wrong because such devotion, if we practice that uh, such devotion, slowly, slowly, that will give us the clarity to understand, or oh, if God is so kind to fulfill all my desires and remove all my difficulties, surely the giver is greater than the gift. So rather than just seeking this and that from God, why don't I seek God himself? If he is so kind and so loving to me to take care of me and provide all that I 
asked for and to remove all the difficulties, how much greater is he than all these things I've been asking for from him? So slowly this, this what is called karmya bhakti, that is devotion for the things we can get from God, becomes nishkamya bhakti. Nishkam, karmya means, uh, 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 means for the fulfillment of desires. Nishkamya means without seeking the fulfillment of desires. So devotion slowly matures into nishkamya bhakti, into love for God, for, the, for his own sake, not for what we can get from God, but for God himself. That is when the real path of devotion begins, we, when we have love for God, not for what we can get from God, but for, um, for uh, we love God for his own sake. When we come, this is when the real path of devotion begins. When we come to this uh, stage of devotion, we quickly come to understand that what stands between us and God is our own will. That is, God is all-knowing. So nothing can happen in our life or in this world without his knowledge. He is all-powerful. So nothing can happen without his consent. And he is all-knowing. So nothing that happens, sorry, he's, he, he's, uh, sorry, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, uh, and he's all-loving. So nothing can happen with his knowledge, nothing can happen without his knowledge, nothing can happen without his consent. And since he's all-loving, whatever happens with his knowledge and with his consent is for the good of all concerned. So when he knows what is best for us, why should we have our own likes and dislikes? But it is inevitable, so long as we rise as ego and take ourselves to, consequently, take ourselves to be a person, it's our very nature to have likes and dislikes. So we can, we, the path of real devotion begins when we try to surrender our will to God. Not my will, but your will. Thy will be done. Or as Bhagavan puts it very beautifully in one of his uh, songs to Aranachala, Ninishtam Enishtam. Your will alone is my will. Imbadaku, that is happiness for me. So whatever you will, that is that whatever be your sweet will, that is my happiness. So I don't seek anything other than what you want for me. So this is the attitude of a real devotee. But as I say, inevitably, so long as we rise as ego, we will to a greater or lesser extent have a will of our own. We'll have likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, hopes, and fears. We can, by trying to surrender ourselves to God, surrender our will to God's will, we can reduce the strength of our likes and dislikes, desires, and attachment. We can begin to take whatever happens in our life with equanimity, knowing that it is all given by God for our own good. But we cannot completely give up our 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 will, so long as we rise as ego. So as we progress in this path of surrender, trying to surrender our will, we come to understand that what actually stands between us and God is not only um, our will, but our seeming separation from God. So 
eventually we come to want to give ourselves wholly to God. And that is the pinnacle of devotion. Because if you truly love someone, you don't, we, we, if we truly love someone, we don't think about what we can get from that person, what we can do for that person. So true love is always seeking to give rather than to take. So what is the greatest gift we can give to the one we love? To give ourselves. So to give ourselves wholly to God is the is the the pinnacle of the of, 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 uh, path of devotion. But how to give ourselves to God? As Bhagavan has made clear, we rise, stand, and flourish as ego by constantly attaching ourselves to things other than ourselves. Firstly, we attach ourselves to this person we take ourselves to be. And then we're constantly seeking to to grasp other things, to uh, to gain this, to gain that. And so the, the very nature of ego is grasping. Firstly, it grasps uh, a person, uh, as a body, as I. And secondly, it, it's constantly seeking things to gratify the, the, needs, of the, the needs and uh, desires of this person. So since grasping is the very nature of ego, we cannot we cannot give up ego. Oh, so grasping is the very nature of ego. But if instead of trying to grasp anything other than itself, if ego tries to grasp itself, in other words, if ego turns its attention back within to see who am I, the nature of ego is thereby to subside. So it rises, uh, stands, and flourishes. Stands means it endures and flourishes to the extent to which it attends to things other than itself. It means I, I as ego, we, we, we rise, stand and flourish as ego by attending to things other than ourselves. But if we turn our attention back within to see who am I, we as ego begin to subside. The subsidence of ego is therefore brought about only by self-investigation. So if we want to, if we want to surrender ourselves wholly to God, the most effective way, and ultimately the only way, is to turn our attention within. Um, in the earlier stages of devotion, so look, we take God to be something other than ourselves. But as, uh, as our devotion matures, we begin to understand that God alone is what is real. Therefore, I cannot have any existence independent of God. Therefore, God is my own being. God is that which is always, God is my own reality. God is that which is shining within me as I. So by turning our attention within, that is not only surrendering ourselves to God, it's also meditating upon God as he really is. Because so, so long as our mind is going outwards, whatever idea we have of God, whether we think God is a particular form, uh, Rama or Krishna or Shiva or uh, Jesus, or maybe, maybe, there, there are so many different forms of God. Um, we, either we think of God as a form, or in some religions they say, no, God is not a form, God is formless. But even our idea that God is formless, is it so, it's just an idea, it's just a, and ideas are mental forms. So we cannot truly know God as formless, so long as we know ourselves as a form. So 
it is natural in the early stages of devotion to um, to meditate on God as if he were a, a name or a form. But when our devotion uh, matures, we begin to recognize that God is our own reality. God is that which is shining in our heart as I am, the pure I am, the pure, our own pure being, our own pure awareness, that is God. So by turning our attention within, in order to surrender ourselves to him, we are also meditating upon him. So um, the path of uh, karmiya bhakti, of de uh, devotion for the things we can get from God, matures into the real bhakti, which is devotion for God for his own sake. That then matures into recognizing that God is not something external to ourselves. God is our own reality. The kingdom of God is within you. In every religion, in some way or other, this is uh, indicated. Uh, Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. In the Old Testament, it, God, when Moses asked, when God sent Moses to um, free uh, the, the Israelite people from uh, from their slavery to the Egyptians, Moses asked, who shall I say has sent me? And God revealed his identity saying, well, in English it's usually translated as, I am who I am, or I am that I am. I think what that actually means is, I am is who I am. So God, and then he, uh, God goes on to say in the next uh, one or two verses after that, he said, say I am has sent you. So the, the name of God, the most sacred name of God in the Old Testament of the Bible and in the, 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 um, in the Jewish uh, uh, scriptures is I am. So it's there in all religions in some form or other, pointing out to the fact that God is our own reality. God is what we actually are. God is to be ultimately to be found only within our own heart. Um, of course, in, in, this is um, in, in most religions, this central teaching is lost among so many other um, more peripheral teachings, but this is the core. If, if a religion has any real life to it, it is. It, it, religion has life to it to the extent to which it is pointing our attention back within, because ultimately we we cannot know God without knowing ourselves, and we when we when we know ourselves we know. They, but we are nothing other than God. God is our own reality. This is a, a summary of Bhagavan's teachings. Um, so four people sent in questions beforehand. I will, because I don't want to take up, I want to leave time for other questions. I'll try to answer these um, as briefly as possible. Um, Joe Mayer wrote, it seems that genuine self-realization in human form, such as that associated with Sri Ramana Maharshi, is, except, is an exceptionally rare circumstance on this earth. It also seems that within the Advaita tradition, there is a fairly strong emphasis 
on the importance of some degree of physical proximity to the presence of a genuinely self-realized guru to facilitate the flow of grace, as well as potentially help along one's uh, own self-realization. Is it thus reasonable to assume that this would create a rather challenging situation of scarcity for those who are sincere about the path of, to self-realization? I have often read that the self within may act as guru, but this is described as exceptionally rare, for example, in David Goldman's writings. This is the question. Um, firstly, about self-realization in human form. Um, People, people talk about a self-realized person, but that is actually a contradiction in term. So long as we experience ourselves as a person, we do not know ourselves as we actually are. When we know ourselves as we actually are, we will know ourselves as pure, um, pure being, pure awareness, pure happiness. We will not experience ourselves as a person. Um, regarding guru. What Bhagavan has taught us about Guru is something far deeper and more refined than the generally than what is generally believed about Guru. That is, in most uh, traditions, um, in most uh, sampradayas. That that means there are so many different um, uh, traditions within Hinduism. Generally, they it, it is believed that a guru is a person, and so there there may be a guru who started a sampradaya, and after, when before that guru passes away, uh, he or she appoints a successor, and then there's a successor. That is what is called a parampara, uh, uh, a lineage of gurus. Bhagavan never uh, uh, left the lineage for a very good reason, because what he taught us about Guru is something much deeper and more subtle than this. According to Bhagavan, Guru is not a person. Guru is our own real nature. In, um, in Nana, in Who Am I, in uh, the, the same work that I was discussing in the first paragraph, in the 12th paragraph, he begins by saying, um, that means God and Guru are in truth not different. So according to Bhagavan, uh, God alone is Guru. And God is nothing but our own real nature. So as Bhagavan often used to say, uh, God, Guru, and Atman are one and the same. Atman in this case means ourself as we actually are, our own Atmaswarupa, the real nature of ourself. So God is our own real nature. God is what we actually, sorry, yeah, God and Guru are our own real nature, what we actually are. So Guru is not just a person. Guru, that is from the Guru is with us for all from all eternity. Guru is our own, is is what we actually are. So, but because our mind is outward going, because we are still seeking happiness and knowledge and all these things outside ourselves, it is necessary at a certain point in our spiritual 
evolution, our spiritual development, for Guru to appear outwardly in human form, as for us, Bhagavan has appeared, uh, that is, Guru appeared outwardly in the form of Bhagavan Ramana. But that is through the person whom we see as, as Bhagavan Ramana or Ramana Maharshi, whatever, um, what we see shining is our own real nature. But his, his fundamental teaching is, I am not this person, I am not this body. Um, so it is natural for us and appropriate for us to have devotion to him. Because of, because of what he's given us, because of the teachings he's given us. But the primary purpose of the outward form of Guru is to give these teachings in words. Bhagavan often said, the real teaching is not the verbal teaching, but silence. What he means by silence is not just verbal silence. It is not just mental silence. It is the silence of our own being. That is, our own being is eternally silent. So the silence Bhagavan is talking about is our own real nature. That is the real teaching. But the teaching in words are necessary in order to turn our attention back within, to attend to the silent teachings that are always going in on in our own heart as our own being. So, Guru is in no way limited to the, um, to the human form in which uh, it appears. So, though Guru appeared in the form of Bhagavan Ramana, it, uh, it, 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 it existed before that form was born and it exists after that form has gone. In fact, um, that, that's why when Bhagavan, when towards the end of his life, when people were weeping because they thought Bhagavan is leaving, Bhagavan said, what do you mean? Where, where can I go? Uh, uh, because for him, there is no coming and going. He is the I am in the heart of each and every one of us. So how can he go anywhere? So he is with us eternally. So in this question, it was asked, um, I've often read that the self within may act as guru. It's not just a matter of the self within acting as guru. Guru is nothing but our own real nature. Our, what we actually are, that is guru. It doesn't actually act at all. It, it, its nature is just pure being. But its nature is not only pure being, it's also pure awareness, pure happiness, and pure love. Because it's because in the view of Guru, Guru doesn't see us as other than it. We see the Guru as another. But in the view of Guru, we Guru sees us as himself or itself, let's say, because Guru is neither male nor female. Guru is beyond all gender. So Guru sees us as itself. Since it sees us as itself, it loves us as itself. So the love, the, the, infinite love that Guru has for us as itself, in other words, the love that Guru has for us as we actually are, is what we experience as the grace of Guru. The grace of Guru is in no way limited to the physical form of a Guru. Guru is not physical. Guru is 
it's, it's by definition guru is spirit itself so uh his grace existed before the human form it existed during the human form and it exists afterwards it is in no way limited by the human form it was necessary for guru to take that human form of bhagavan ramana in order to give us these teachings but we if we think that uh but a People talk about the need for a living guru. Sadhuam uh, used to say, yes, a living guru is absolutely necessary. But if by living guru you mean a living person, a living body, then one day your living guru will become a dead guru. There's no use in such a guru. What we need is an eternally living guru. That eternally living guru is Bhagavan. Before he he um he manifested in human form. He was ever shining in our heart as I am. While he was manifested in human form, he was still shining in our heart as I am. After he cast up that human form, he is still shining in our heart as I am. This is why Bhagavan never appointed any successor, because a, a, a lineage of gurus is applicable only if you take guru to be a person. But Bhagavan was giving us a much more, much deeper, more subtle, and more refined understanding of what guru actually is. Guru is nothing other than God. Guru is nothing other than our own real nature. Guru is eternal. Guru is the eternally living reality, the eternally shining reality. So in, there's the great Bhagavan's grace is never under any circumstances limited in any way. He is always shining in our heart as I am. Bhagavan said this explicitly. The, the grace is always shining in my heart as I am. People say, oh, God isn't gracious to me. Bhagavan said that is wrong. God is always equally gracious to each and every one of us, each and every sentient being. He's shining the heart of all at their own fundamental awareness I am, from the smallest ant to the highest God. So his grace is equal to equally and infinitely shining in all. So the, the grace of God or Guru is never lacking. The grace that is lacking is grace from our part, because though he is so kind to shine in our heart eternally as our own being, I am, we are so ungracious to him, but we are constantly looking outwards, attending to the world, attend, seeking happiness here and there, instead of turning our attention within and lovingly surrendering ourselves to him in our own heart. So, um, be, be, I, I, Joe, if you're listening to this, I understand where your question is coming from, but it is full of misconceptions. It's not your fault for these misconceptions. These are very, very prevalent misconceptions. But Bhagavan has removed. But even among the devotees of Bhagavan, many do not understand uh, this fact. What Bhagavan has taught us about the nature of Guru is very, very deep, very radical, and very subtle. So if we understand it correctly, we will understand that Bhagavan is our eternal Guru. From the uh, um, time immemorial, from the time we first rose as ego, he has been 
he has been with us, guiding us, and he has brought us to where we are now. And he he will come. He had been guiding us on this journey back to ourselves. He will continue guiding us unfailingly until we reach our goal. So the idea, but we we need a guru in human, any guru in human form other than Bhagavan, is a complete shows a complete misunderstanding of, of Bhagavan's teachings. If we understand Bhagavan's teachings correctly, we will understand that he is our eternal guru. He is always shining in our heart as I. His grace is never lacking. We need nothing. If at all we need any external aid, he has given it to us in the form of his teachings. So if we if we follow his teachings, if we study what he has taught us, think carefully about it, understand what he is saying, and most importantly of all, put it into practice. What more can we expect from a guru? That is the real function of guru is deep within our heart, where he is always... Um, Acting as guru without acting, as Bhagavan often used to say, doing without doing. That is by just being as he actually is, he is everything is happening as it's meant to happen. So his grace is is, is never in any way lacking. But what is required is for us to turn our attention within to know him in our own heart, to, and to give ourselves, surrender ourselves wholly to him in our own heart. Um, but that brings me on to the next question, which was asked by Doctor uh, Michael. Michael, yes? there's a final question on that. Yes. Thank okay. You. Yeah, the question is, uh, you know, Bhagavan has said that you know, Guru is ever living in our own heart yes. as the awareness. How would he? How would you classify yourself as Michael James, who's bringing this message to us? How would you think about yourself? <laughs> oh, I, uh, um, I'm just, uh, I'm just relaying what Bhagavan is saying. I, I'm not saying anything of my own. I'm just pointing out what Bhagavan has said. So I have, I mean, my role is it's incidental. It's it's unimportant. Bhagavan can use any worthless straw to achieve anything. So. Um, it's it, it my my role. I mean, Bhagavan could use anyone for this purpose. So it's that's not the the person who that is the fact I'm able to talk about Bhagavan's teaching. It's entirely by His grace. It's nothing to do with me. Okay. I am I am just an ordinary spiritual aspirant like everyone else. So um, there's nothing special about me. It's all entirely Bhagavan's grace. Yeah, Michael, we understand that. Thank you. Yes, yes. I think we can move to the next question. Yes, yes. So, um, Dr. Sarangapani asked, Bhagavan always said that diving deep, a deep diving into the mind while questioning who am I and where are all these thoughts originating from and who is asking the question? For deep diving, Bhagavan quotes the analogy of a pearl diver. What is this deep diving? Um, firstly, we don't dive within by asking questions. Bhagavan didn't say to question who am I or to question where are all these thoughts coming from or to question who is 
um, asking, this is all mental activity. What Bhagavan said is to investigate who am I, to investigate from where all these thoughts come uh, originate, to investigate who is asking these questions. Supposing Bhagavan gives us a book and says, investigate what's written in it, would we sit there asking, holding the book in our hands, saying, what is written in this book? What is written in this book? No, obviously we wouldn't. When he says investigate, he means what we should understand. We should need to open the book and read what's written in it. When he says that is in many of the English books, it's wrongly recorded, but he said to question, who am I? And because the word inquire is used in English, the word inquire has two meanings in English. It can mean inquire into, or in other words, investigate, or inquire in the sense of asking questions. The term, uh, the terms that Bhagavan used in Tamil, he often used the, the Sanskrit um, noun bichara, uh, and the a, a Tamil verb derived from that, which is vichari. Vichara means investigation. It means inquiry in the sense of investigation. Uh, it, it, um, and vichari means uh, investigate. It can also, in other contexts, it can mean inquiry in the sense of asking questions, but that is not the sense in which Bhagavan is using it. He's talking about investigating what we are. If we simply ask ourselves a question, who am I? That's simply a mental activity. That's not going to take us, we're not going to dive deep within by just floating on the surface asking ourselves questions. We need to look deep within. So what did he mean when he, talk, when he talked of diving deep within? That is the term that he, the terms, there are several verbs in Tamil that uh, have the same meaning, but mean diving also means sinking. And I... I understand it more as sinking deep within. How can we seek deep within? To the extent to which we turn our attention inwards, ego subsides. That subsidence of ego is what Bhagavan refers to as sinking deep within. So the more we attend to ourselves, the more ego will subside. So the more we sink within. It's not sinking, it's not sinking into the mind is sinking into the heart that means sinking into our very being so the, the opposite of rising is subsiding or sinking it's in that sense bhagavan used it and when he used this analogy of the pearl diver he said just like the pearl diver ties stones to his to to his uh, or her waist uh, in order to sink deep into the ocean, we need to tie the stone of vairagya. Vairagya means freedom from desire in order to sink deep within. And uh, this, is, this is an analogy Bhagavan gives in the 11th paragraph of Nana, or Who Am I? A few sentences earlier, he defined what he meant by vairagya. Vairagya means desirelessness. He said, not attending to what is other, anything other than oneself, is vairagya or nirasa, desirelessness. Anyate nada diritel vairagyam aladu nirase, he says in Tamil. That means not attending to anything other than oneself 
is vairagya or nirasa. That is the stone that we need to tie to our waist in order to sink deep within. Uh, in other words, we, we need to have great love to, to know what we actually are, and we need to be free from desire to know or experience anything other than ourselves. To the extent to which we have that love and that desirelessness, we will naturally sink deep within, but that is, we'll turn our attention back within and naturally sink deep within. So I hope that adequately answers that. So the trouble with the word diving, diving tends to suggest something very active, but it's it's not, it, that is sinking within is not an activity, it's a cessation of activity. To the extent to which we attend to ourselves, we as ego, the doer of all actions subsides, so all actions subsides along with us. So it's not an active diving, it is, it is, it's a surrender. We are, we are, by attending to him, we are subsiding, we are sinking within, we are surrendering ourselves to him. So, uh, sinking deep within is surrendering ourselves wholly to him. There's a follow-up question. Yes. Um, namaste, Michael. Um, so the follow-up question, the follow-up question is this. So maybe there may be moments while we are doing this vichara of if some glimpses of pointing to what that I am. Mm. Um but the challenge is that because we have these roles as moms, dads, wives, employee, mm. employer, whatever it is, we need to fulfill those roles. Yes. So are there pointers to you hold on to that moment, but how do you, are, what are the tools that we can use to kind of be in that moment and still fulfill these roles and, 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 and not, I mean, not actually fulfill that role properly not being like an, a disattached soul. Okay, yeah, good, good question. That is, it's not a matter of glimpsing I am. The one thing we are always aware of is I am. We, I am a mum. I am a dad. I am a uh, have such such a role in the office. I have. I'm a child to my parents. I'm a, a parent to my children. All these. What is common to all these experiences, what is common to every possible experience is I am. Who is experiencing this? I am. Who has this role? I. So it's, it's, we, it's, it's never a matter of glimpsing I am. I am is the one thing that we always know. The problem is, as Bhagavan said, there's no new knowledge for us to gain. The problem is, on on top of the, on the real knowledge, I am, we've superimposed so many, so much false knowledge. I am a mum. I am a dad. I am a office worker. I have responsibilities. I have my the mortgage to pay. I have, um, uh, I have the bills to pay. I have to educate my children. I have to get my daughters married. I, 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 I is there everywhere. But we, in, but, but the problem is our attention is going outwards. So whatever we may be doing, whatever role we may be fulfilling, we are always aware I am. So we can always hold on to I am. 
And we need not fear, but by holding on to I am, we'll be neglecting our duties or anything like that. Because Bhagavan has said, whatever is destined to happen is going to happen. Whatever is not destined to happen is not going to happen. However much you try to achieve what is not going to happen, it's not going to happen. What, however much you try to avoid what is going to happen, it's going to happen. And whatever we need to do in accordance with what is destined to happen, we will be made to do. That is, God or Guru will make us act. So if you if you're a mother or a father, if you have a, a job, if you have so many responsibilities, we all have so many responsibilities. These responsibilities are of a person we take ourselves to be. This person will be made to do all these things by God, or by Bhagavan, let's say, by a guru or whatever. It's God, guru, Bhagavan, all are one and the same. Uh, the more we hold on to I am, the more we are surrendering our mind, speech, and body to him, letting him do, him means it, I mean, it obviously is beyond all gender, I don't mean it in a, uh, because we conventionally refer to God as him in that sense, uh, he will make us act uh, in whatever way is appropriate. So we need not feel that we are, but we can ever neglect our duties by attending to I am. Attending to I am is our first and foremost duty. If we do this duty, all the other duties will go on perfectly. That Bhagavan has assured us in so many ways. Is that a satisfactory answer to your question? Yeah, there is one more follow-up question on this. Yes. Uh, namaste, Michael G. Namaste. Uh, so the question I have is, um, I know um, uh, Ramana Bhagavan actually, um, you know, philosophy, his philosophy is uh, destiny-driven philosophy, whereas a lot of other schools of Advaita teach us about uh, karma phala, right? Uh, they talk about uh, nishkamya karma and uh, anything that happens is a result of the karma either in this uh, uh, in this birth or the prior birth, right? Yes. Uh, so I want you to contrast the two. And I also have one more uh, um, question that I will ask you after you answer this okay. question. Okay. Um, Bhagavan is, is, what Bhagavan teaches is the traditional Vedantic view of karma. That is, the destiny is karma pala, the fruit of our past karmas. That is, there are three karmas. Agamya, Sanchita, and Prarabdha. Agamya means those actions we do under the sway of our own will. In other words, under the sway of our bhasanas. We are free to we are free to do actions under the sway of our will, but that is, but those actions we do will will. Uh, well, the, the fruit of those action doesn't get experienced by us in this lifetime. Though it often seems to us, I did a certain action, it produced a certain result. It produced that result only because that was already destined. So the actions we do by our own will, under the sway of our own will in this lifetime, are called agamya. The agamya bears fruit. The fruit is called pala. 
that karma pala or fruit of karma gets stored in what is called sanchitta. Sanchitta simply means a heap or pile. So sanchitta is the, all the fruits of our past karmas done in innumerable lives, but we have but haven't yet been experienced. That the fruit of an action means what is to be experienced as a result of that action. So in each lifetime, we are experiencing the fruit of actions we've done in previous lives. But if we, if we, in a lifetime, we may we uh, we experience one lifetime worth of fruit, but we may accumulate ten lifetimes worth of fruit because we always desire much more than we are able to experience in this life. So, as a general rule, we are in every life we are creating more fruit than we are consuming. So the sanchitta is an ever-growing bank balance. For each life, it is the role of God or Guru to select from the huge, uh, from that huge bank balance, which fruit are to be experienced by us in this lifetime. And he selects those fruit that will be most conducive to our spiritual development. So the the fruit of our past action, the karma pala of past actions that we are destined to experience in this lifetime is what is called destiny. Many people misunderstand Bhagavan's teaching in this regard because they don't pay close attention to what Bhagavan has taught us. Many people think because Bhagavan has said, in the note he wrote to his mother, he begins by saying, in accordance with the destiny of each one, he who is for that, meaning God or Guru, being there, there, meaning being in the heart of each one of us, will make us act. People naively take that to mean, oh, all our actions, actions we're made to do by God. That is not what Bhagavan is saying. He says, in accordance with our destiny, our prarabdha. Uh, so that means those actions that are necessary for us to do in order for our, our destiny to unfold, those actions will be made to do. It doesn't mean that all the actions we do are actions we're made to do by God. As he makes clear in the next two sentences, in the next sentence he says, whatever is never to happen will not happen in spite of any amount of effort. What does that imply? We are free to, we, we are not free to change what is destined what we are destined to experience. But we are free to want to experience things we're not destined to experience, and we're free to try for that. We are not free to experience it. So we, ca we can, um, I can want to be the President of the United States. I can make all sorts of efforts to be President of the United States, but if it's not my destiny to be President of the United States, it's not going to happen. So there's no contradiction whatsoever between free will and destiny. Destiny determines what we are to experience. Freedom of will determines what we want to experience. And freedom of action determines what we try to experience. But however much we want to experience something and try to experience it, we will not experience it unless it is destined to happen. So there's absolutely no contradiction between 
um, fate and will. That's why Bhagavan says in verse 19 of Uludunapadu, uh, he uses two terms there, vidi and mati. Mati means, in that context means will, vidi means fate. So he said, vidi mati mulam vivekam ilake, vidi mati vellam vivadam. That is, the dispute as to which prevails, fate or will, is only for those who do not who do not discern the root of both fate and will. The root of both fate and will is ego. It's ego who has a will, who does actions according to its will. It's ego that experiences the fruit of that, the, the destiny. So there, there's no conflict between destiny and will. Because will determines what we want to experience. Destiny determines what we are to experience. Is that a fact, clear answer to your question? Just yes. want to add something. In fact, yes. Bhagavan Yoga Vasishta in this context. He talks to Rama and he says, go and do all the worldly actions like a hero, but yes. inwardly never think that you are doing it. And he says that that's exactly hold on to the eye. Yes. Don't yes. hold on to the rest of the eye. That's what he's talking about. So I so, think I mean somewhere that yeah. Go so, so long as we identify ourselves with this body, speech, and mind, we experience ourselves as a doer of actions. I am sitting here. I'm thinking what to say next. I'm talking. All these are. I might because I identify this body as I. I refer to all these actions as I am doing it. So doership is the very nature of ego. But if we hold on to our being, ego thereby subsides. And whatever actions, then we are surrendering our mind, speech, and body to God. Let him do what, whatever actions he wants to do through these actions. He will do, whether we surrender ourselves or not, he will make us do whatever, we are, what, whatever is in accordance with our destiny, whatever we need to do in accordance with our destiny. Or rather, he will make this mind, speech, and body do whatever is... It's because it's not we are not the doer, the mind, speech, and body are doing. We seem to be the doer because we identify ourselves with the mind, speech, and body. And as Bhagavan said, if we are a doer of actions, we will have to experience the resulting fruit. Beautiful, uh, Michael. I tell you, the whole group seems to be really, you know, sparked with your uh, interpretation of. Uh, it's uh, not my destiny. interpretation. I'm just saying what Bhagavan no, said. Bhagavan. No, but you you brought us to this session. Yes. And that is predestined. <laughs> I mean, it's it's predestined. All he, he is the doer then. It's, it's beautiful. All yes. that I wanted to say, my heart is full, because this is one area where there is a lot of confusion in life. lot of confusion. And this, you really got the eyes broken, right? We, you know, here it is. Yes. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, we can it's, all, the it's, yeah. it's all thanks to Bhagavan, because I'm just saying what Bhagavan, what Bhagavan taught. But trouble is, people don't pay close enough attention to what Bhagavan actually taught us. And they, they read these books, which are, um, that is in many of the books where, where things are recorded, they were recorded by people who didn't understand very clearly themselves. So they didn't record clearly what Bhagavan was saying, they, because they didn't grasp it. They can only record what they understand. Yeah. If we go to Bhagavan's original writings, there we can find 
if, if we think about it deeply, all the answers are given there in Bhagavan's original writings. Yeah, we can move to the other questions, Michael. Yes, yes. The third question I was asked was by uh, Jim Robinson. He wrote, Ramana states that the nature of the self is Satchidananda. Since he ascribes these qualities to the self, does that make the self personal? Um, firstly, but this term the self with a capital S, this is used a lot in English books, both English books on Bhagavan teachings and in Vedanta more generally. But this is not, it's, it's a rather misleading translation because the term in Sanskrit is Atman. Atman simply, Atman is not a noun. It's, it's best to understand Atman as a pronoun. So what it refers to, like the English word self, self is, though, though philosophers often use the word self as a noun, in normal speech, we use self only as an adverb. So myself, sorry, not adverb, as a pronoun. Um, myself, yourself, himself, herself, itself, all these, uh, um, in English, we, we add a preposition before it to make it clear what is being referred to. But in Sanskrit, Atman, it can mean oneself, it can mean myself, yourself, himself, herself, depends on the context. So like any pronoun, the meaning of the word self is dependent on the context. So because if we talk about the self, it sounds like we're talking about a thing. It's not a thing, it's ourself we're talking about. So what we actually are is Satchidananda. Sat means being, Chit means awareness, and Ananda means happiness. That means pure being, pure existence, pure awareness, pure happiness. That is our real nature. These are not qualities. Existence is not a quality. Existence is something far more fundamental. You, something must exist in order to have qualities. So existence comes first. And Satchid and Ananda are not three different things. Sat itself is chit. That is, existence itself is awareness. Awareness itself is existence. And existence and awareness are happiness. So Satchid and Ananda, though it's a a compound of three words, all those three words are referring to one thing and one thing alone. That which actually exists is awareness, that is happiness. So these are not qualities, this is what we actually are. Um, and this does not make our real nature personal. What makes something personal? A person is first and foremost a body. And in that body, obviously, there's a there's a dead body we don't consider as a person, uh, so it's a living body. And um, a body that is not, if the mind and um, and intellect and will are not functioning, it's not it's a sleeping body or a body in coma, but it's not a person. So it's only when when we limit ourselves as as a body with a mind and intellect, etc., but we, uh, but we take ourselves to be a person. Our real nature is beyond all these limitations. Our real nature is infinite existence, infinite being, sat, infinite awareness, chit, 
and infinite happiness, ananda. So these are not qualities, these are fundamental. All qualities are only for the person we take ourselves to be. Um, but for the, uh, the underlying reality is beyond all qualities, it is niguna. Jim, if you're there, does this help to answer your question? Yes, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, okay. Um, and then finally, the, the final question was um, uh, Bob Streaker asked, um, when I am tempted to worry about world events, for example, war in Ukraine, climate change, American political extremism, mass shootings, American racism, etc., I think about how Bhagavan sat through two world wars and it calms me down immediately. Can you tell us about Bhagavan's thoughts and the comments he made about how to respond to, react to catastrophic world events such as the two world wars and Indian independence movement while he was alive? Um, Bhagavan Bhagavan taught, gave teachings at different levels to suit people of different levels of understanding. So, for example, there were some people around Bhagavan who were very concerned about the condition of the world. And obviously, the most immediate concern uh, in those days in India was the unrighteous foreign rule. Um, and so there was a very strong independence movement. Um, so this was something that many people were very concerned about. So for people who wanted to rectify, and people had other concerns. People, some people came to Bhagavan and said, um, the caste system is very unjust, but uh, I want to work to remove the caste system or this or that. All sorts of um, injustice. I mean, the world, the nature of the world is to be full of injustices and all sorts of uh, uh, and wars and famines and uh, pandemics, all these things happen in the world. It's the nature of the world. And political extremism, yes, there is political extremism in, Amer in America, but it's, all there, it's there everywhere in the world. There's racism everywhere in the world. Is there any country in the world that is free of racism? It, the problem is not in the world, the problem is in the hearts of people. Racism, it, 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 it's it's it, it's not the outside world that is racist it's people who are racist in their own heart they have because they so strongly identify themselves i am i am american i'm white american i'm black american i'm indian i'm european i'm british i'm uh, french i'm german i'm this i'm that or i'm christian i'm muslim i'm hindu i'm buddhist i'm sikh i'm jain i'm uh Confucian, all these, these, all these things arise out of false identification. So the root of all these problems is ego. So Bhagavan's central teaching was about rooting out ego, because ego ultimately is the root cause of all these things. But for people whose minds were very outward going, and when they used to come to Bhagavan and say, oh, there's so many, this problem in the world, I want to solve that problem I want to solve. For such people, Bhagavan used to say, he who has created this world, 
knows how to look after it. Leave it to him. You surrender yourself to him. Don't, don't, don't try to take over his job. He, he knows how to take care of this world. So Bhagavan used to say to that to people whose minds were very outward going. Um, that is, he, he, he talked from a level at which it is said, but God has created this world. But <clears throat> Bhagavan's deeper teaching is all of this exists in whose view? Only in the view of ourself as ego. The whole world is nothing but a, well, our whole life in this world is nothing but a dream. If in a dream, if you see injustices in a dream, or if you see a war, or a famine, or a pandemic, or so many types of people suffering from cancer, so many different forms of suffering are there in this world, the same things we see in dream. If you see people suffering in a dream, what is the greatest good you can do for those people? Obviously, wait, you, you can go and um, try and alleviate their suffering in the dream, but a much more effective way of relieving their suffering is by waking up. Because they and their suffering exist only in, your view, in the view of your dreaming mind. Likewise, according to Bhagavan, this whole world is a, our, our entire life in this world is one long dream. We who experience all this are the dreamer. So if we want to put an end to all the suffering in this world, all the injustices, all the wars, all the political extremism, all the climate change, all the mass shootings, the racism, all these problems, if you want to put an end to all problems, all we need to do is to wake up from this dream. We are dreaming because we have risen as ego and take ourselves to be this person. We can wake up from this dream only by knowing ourselves as we actually are. So the solution Bhagavan gave to all problems is to know ourselves as we actually are and thereby eradicate ego, which is the root of all problems. Why is ego the root of all problems? Because it's only in the view of ego that all these problems exist. In sleep, are we worried about um, climate change or war in Ukraine or uh, political extremism or racism or mass shootings or anything? All these problems arise for us only when we, in the waking and dream states. In sleep, no, there's no such problem because we don't rise as ego. So the root, root cause of all these problems is our rising as ego. If we, if we investigate and know ourselves as we actually are, we will know everything is perfect as it is. What, why but, but we... Mike, yes? I can have a follow-up question on that. It is not to say that, you know, he said, be indifferent to the world's suffering. What he said is, don't think that you can solve the whole problem. Yes, that, that's, why he, that, that's why he said about, um, about he who has created this world knows how to take care of it, leave it to him. Because obviously, he, he ridiculed people who tried to solve the problems of the world. He said, when we are all being supported by God, by the power of God, thinking that we can solve the problems of the world is like a, 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 a lame person who cannot even stand, who says, if, if someone will lift me, where will my enemies be before me? And he also compared to... Uh, figure carved on the top of the temple towers in South India, Gopuram, the Gopurams. Uh, there's a figure, there are four figures carved at the top, but seem to be straining to 
to bear the load of that of the top of the gopuram they're called gopuram tangi bhagavan said people who want to solve the problems of the world are like those gopuram tangi they themselves are being supported by the gopuram but they think that they are supporting everything so yes bhagavan bhagavan is is of course bhagavan never said but if supposing you you're walking down the street and you see a person who's starving or someone who's hungry or you see someone who's had an accident or something of course we should help people i mean we we shouldn't be indifferent to the world in that sense but we should recognize our own limitations we should recognize that we can't solve the problems but what can we do to solve the problem of the, the war in ukraine or the war in yemen what can we do to solve problems of pandemics what can we do to solve world hunger we are we are powerless all these things happen in, in not i mean they these things happen it's the nature of the world we can't solve these problems but we need bhagavan was always trying to get us to go deeper so for those who were very outward going he said leave it all to god but for those who were ready to go deeper into his teachings he said all this is just a dream so long as you're in a dream but if you're hungry dream food will solve your dream hunger so if you see a in your dream if you see a hungry person you give you share your food with that hungry person that is natural that that, that but that's all only within the dream the greatest good you can do in the dream to relieve all the suffering in the dream it is all the suffering in your dream is brought to um, an end in one fell swoop simply by your waking up Bhagavan says, if you wake up, you will then see that this whole world is perfect. All the problems in the world are due to your own wrong view. If you see the world, if you if you see yourself as you actually are, you will see your, the world as it actually is. And the, what the world actually is, is nothing but yourself. The world is, is nothing but an appearance in Brahman. What it actually is, is just Brahman. There are a couple of questions which have come in the Zoom chat. Yeah. Yes. One is, um, what was Bhagavan's uh, sleeping habits? I think, Kumar, uh, you have raised this question. And second is, when are you going to Tiruvannamalai? These are the two questions which is <laughs> Kumar. Um, Kumar Dangi. Thank you. Thank you. For Bhagavan, there is neither waking dream or sleep. That is the truth. But because Bhagavan seemed to be a person like us, he seemed to have waking dream and sleep like us. But it, uh, if we are talking simply about the person whom we take to be Bhagavan, Bhagavan did sleep, but it is said that Bhagavan lived a totally open life. So the, the, the hall where he lived, in the later years, well, the caves where he lived in earlier years were always open to people to come at any time of day and night. So if someone came in the middle of the night, it would seem to them that Bhagavan was awake because Bhagavan would at once look at them. So uh, Bhagavan seemed to be sleeping and seemed to be awake at the same time. We can't really tell. But actually, but Bhagavan's true state is beyond these three. That is, uh, 
his true state is what is called Churia. Churia, though it means the fourth, as he said, only for those who experience waking, dream, and sleep is the real state called the fourth, the, the state of wakeful sleep, as it's sometimes called. It's called the fourth. But since the, that, that state, the fourth, alone actually exists, and the other three states do not exist, um, it, it's not even to call it the fourth or beyond the fourth is not correct. So we, we need to understand Bhagavan. We we cannot understand Bhagavan's state by see so long as we see him as a person. Though he appeared in that human form, he's in no way limited to that human form. His real state is beyond anything but our mind can grasp or imagine. As he says in um in Uladunapadu, how to understand, how to 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 yeah, how to understand the state of one who does not know anything other, anything other than himself. That is, Bhagavan's state is a state of absolute non-duality. For him, there are no others. There are no, there are no differences. There are no three states. There is only the one, the, the one, but a, one only without a second. Ekameva okay. Advitiam. Thank you, Michael. Right. Thank you very much. Uh, and... Other question is, uh, when you planning to back to Tribhuvan Malai? Anytime <laughs> soon? Or I, not I, I have been planning for a long time, but man okay. proposes and Bhagavan disposes. So okay. uh, I, I'm hoping later this year I may be able to go, but it's entirely in his hands. Yes, that's absolutely. Thank <laughs> you, Michael. Thank you so much. Well, as he said in the note to his mother, uh, uh, what is never to happen will not happen in spite of any amount of effort. What is to happen will not stop in spite of any amount of obstruction. So what is to happen will happen when it is to happen. But Thank I you. live in the hope but, uh, yeah. uh, but <laughs> I will uh, go there sometime soon. But it's, if it's his will, let it be. If it's not his will, let it be. Whatever he wills is what is best. We Thank think we know what is good for us, but he alone knows what is truly good for us. So whatever be his will, that is what is good.